Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Holistic Hippie Podcast, episode number two, which is all about understanding ego. Um, I wanted to take this opportunity to introduce a topic that I plan to really talk a lot more about in coming episodes, and so I thought it would be a good idea to create the framework for this particular topic of ego. Um, It's not something that I really understood when I first started working with it. I think the first time I ever heard the idea of ego was when I was reading an Eckhart Tolle book called A New Earth, and he referenced ego so much in the beginning of that book that I actually put it away. I might have been 20 or 21 when I was reading it, and I put it away thinking like, oh, this doesn't apply to me at all. I can't relate to this book at all because I don't have an ego. I'm not an egotistical person. And it's what I truly believed about myself at that time. And and I was very misguided when it came to what the topic of ego was. I think what I thought it was, and this maybe is a common um, misinterpretation, is I thought it was kind of in reference to someone who was conceited or full of themselves or, um, yeah, like that kind of person, like a jock or somebody that was very, very... um, big-headed, you know, full of themselves in that way where the world revolves around them and that that's what ego is. And coincidentally, I mean, that's not all wrong. It's just that we don't really see ourselves in that light. (laughs) And so um, it's funny, I put that book down and I think about seven years later, I picked it up again and it was so incredibly instantly relevant at the time that I picked it up later. And if you haven't read the book, um, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, that is a brilliant read um, or listen on an audiobook. <clears throat> and so I wanted to, um, you know, really break down this concept so that we have the proper framework to work with it. Because it's a topic that I speak about a lot, um, even in my yoga classes, um, even with my nutrition clients. And it's something that we really need to be able to understand it and identify it within ourselves so that we, we can properly work with it. And sometimes you see, especially on social media, this like there's even an account that I follow that's called Kill the Ego. And I I just don't, I don't think that that's really the right route. Although I like this personal account and some of the content that they share, but the whole notion of killing the ego, I don't think that's exactly what we need to do. I think we need to learn how to make it an ally and recognize within ourselves that we all have this aspect and uh, be able to work with it accordingly. And so to better kind of explain what ego is, I'm going to start by uh, just kind of a basic history of how this word came to be. So the, the actual word ego is derived, as far as I can tell, from a 19th century Latin word, which translates as I, meaning our sense of self. And so right off the bat, we could take that definition and say, right. There is, we all have a sense of self. We all perceive ourself in some way or another. And therefore, everything that we perceive as sense of self is ego. Sigmund Freud has a theory on ego as well. It's kind of a threefold theory because he looks at these three different layers of self and they are referred to as the id, the ego, and the superego. 
And so the id is our most primal, deep-rooted instincts to sleep, to seek pleasure and to avoid pain. And this is stored so deeply into the subconscious mind. Ego, he says, acts as a buffer between the id and reality. And so you can see how helpful that is. The superego, he says, is ruled by social conditioning. And so Sigmund Freud has these three theories, and I think very much so um, a lot of mainstream information has been built upon this. Now, if you look at Carl Jung's theory on ego, it sort of merges with Eastern philosophies, and he says this, anyone who has ego consciousness at all takes it for granted that he knows himself, but the ego knows only its own contents, not the unconscious and its contents. And that's by Carl Jung in The Undiscovered Self. Now, I love Eckhart Tolle and some of the work that he has done in describing and depicting ego. And he's got this, um, this quote. He writes extensively about ego. Um, so he's got this quote that I love. Give up defining yourself to yourself or to others. You won't die. You will actually come to life. And don't be concerned with how others define you. When they define you, they are limiting themselves, so it's their problem. Whenever you interact with people, don't be there primarily as a function or as a role, but as the field of conscious presence. You can only lose something that you have, but you cannot lose something that you are. And that's quoted by Eckhart Tolle from A New Earth, and I'll put all of these things in the show notes. Um, but basically, whatever comes into your mind when you are thinking of yourself is your ego. It's all of the ways that you define yourself, all of your experiences, your perceptions, the way you see yourself, the way you see others. Your ego basically colors the lens of your perception. So all of your ideas about yourself, your beliefs, your ideologies, your afflictions, desires, social status, fears, likes, dislikes, all of that is ego. And so when we look at it in that way, I mean, is it bad? I, we can't really say that it's bad. You're you know, the, the things that you believe about yourself. However, when we add in the layer um, from Freud's theory of social conditioning, then we can start to see some problematic beliefs being installed into our, our ego or our sense of self. And so, I mean, ego, ultimately, when you look into any of Dr. Joe Dispenza's work, who is a brilliant author and very prominent in the field right now of meditation, he speaks about the first seven years being a very, very crucial time in our development, um, our ego development. He talks about how it's the certain brain waves that we are utilizing called theta during this time, the first seven years. And theta is also consistent with the same type of brain activity that we find in somebody that has been hip hypnotized. Um, this is also the same brainwave activity that we find in somebody that is experiencing deep trance-like meditation. So a lot of these Buddhist monks and yogic practitioners in the East. And so when you think about it in this way, this state of being hypnotized, we are very suggestible. I don't know if anyone has ever watched, um, you know, one of those shows where, or gone to like one of those events where there's a, a master hypnotherapist and they are hypnotizing the crowd and asking them to do wild and strange things. But we are very suggestible in this particular state 
of mind. This is why meditation is so powerful because we can actually utilize meditation to get deep into our subconscious mind and reinstill new beliefs. This is how hypnosis works to, to help people quit smoking and etc. And so we spend the first seven years of our lives in this brainwave, this theta brainwave. And this means that we are very susceptible to form belief systems based on what we experience as children. And in those really young age groups, we don't have the logic and reasoning that we develop later as adults. We don't have emotional um, intelligence at that time. And so because we are not emotionally intelligent and we are very, very suggestible, I don't even know if that's a word, suggestible, um, but we are in this really more vulnerable state of mind. And so, for example, there are things that can be instilled into our subconscious belief systems about, let's say, money at a very young age. If our parents had any financial stress when we were in those young, fragile ages, they might have talked about it openly in front of us. They might not have. There might have been an underlying energy of tension around money, and that gets imprinted into that subconscious mind. And we learn right away about money. Ooh, money is bad. Money causes tension. Money causes this yucky feeling in the energy fields. Um, there's so many different ways that we can instill limiting beliefs. I mean, you then start to see how children that have experienced abuse and trauma early on in life, this can start to form the foundation for how they build their personality because that's really what's happening in the first seven years is we are using all of our experiences, all of the people that we have been exposed to, um, to, to help to build and construct our personality. And so that's an interesting thing to think about and to work with and to start to see how these types of experiences can then shape what we think and believe to be true as adults. Ego shows up in everything, in everything, especially when we see conflict, um, because really what you're seeing is two aspects of ego that are clashing and rubbing against one another. And so one ego um, believes something to be true. The other believes something different to be true. And here they come together and they collide. And you see this a lot with intimate relationships. You see this a lot with just even family members um, and working, working for somebody or with somebody, colleagues, you know, this plays out in so many different ways. And so I think what's important first and foremost is to really, really sort of ask yourself, who am I? This is a meditation that I like to use a lot in my yoga classes and with private clients specifically because it starts to help us really peel back the layers of who we are. Now, if you have time to do this now, do it. Maybe pause this episode or do it after the show is done, but sit quietly with yourself and ask, who am I? And all of the things that come to mind that describe who you think you are, all have to do with ego. And this is a great exercise to do and to continue doing. Peel back the layers. Now, once you've figured out the first layers, okay, I, who am I? I am, a, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do this for myself. I am a yoga teacher. I am a holistic nutritionist. Um, 
who am I? I'm an, I'm the oldest sister. I've got three younger sisters, so I'm an older sister. I'm the daughter of my mother and father. Um, who am I? I'm, I'm a wife. I'm a wife. I'm the caregiver for this beautiful dog, Toby, that's sitting beside me right now. <laughs> uh, who am I? You know, and we start to come up with all of these things. Now, here's the thing about ego, right? And, and this is great for, for right now. I mean, I'm recording this episode in the middle of this wild um, COVID-19 virus outbreak. And right now in this moment, my yoga studio is shut down. So does that mean that I'm no longer a yoga teacher? There's an aspect of my ego identity that becomes threatened. What if the studio never opens again? Without the yoga studio and people to teach, how can I be a yoga teacher? How can that be a layer of my identity? The clinic where I practice nutrition is closed. How can I be a holistic nutritionist if I have no clients to see? And so you can see how when we attach ourselves to these layers of our ego, there is a considerable amount at risk there. If we're putting all of our sense of self into these various baskets, what happens if something comes along to disturb the apple cart? You see a lot, actually, when people retire, there's a huge identity crisis because if they spent 60 some odd years or less working for a company and pouring all of your time and your energy into the job that you have only to then, you know, get to this place in time where it's such an amazing opportunity then to retire. And then who are you? You know, what else have we neglected in getting to this place in time? Have we put the same amount of effort and energy into being a husband or a wife or a partner, you know, into being a daughter or a son, into being a caregiver? And even at those levels of ego, it's not necessarily all that we are. And this is what meditation can help to do with us as we continue to ask these questions and peel back the layers. Who am I? Okay, if I'm not any of those things, if I'm not a yoga teacher and I'm not a holistic nutritionist and I'm not a spouse and I'm not a daughter, who am I? Okay, well, I'm a girl. So now I've got my gender to identify. I'm a girl. I'm a human being. Um, you know, how, how else can we find ways to identify? I'm a Canadian. I have indigenous descent, Italian descent, Irish and English descent. I'm Heinz 57 with my race. Who am I? And it's all about peeling back these layers, peeling back these layers, peeling back these layers. I like to think of ego as this, that when we are conceived in our mother's womb, there is not yet a body that's been built and yet, we can conceive that there is a spark of life in the womb of the woman that's holding the child. So at this place, there's energy, the energy that illuminates the heartbeat, the pulse, and the body gets built around this energy. And once the body has been constructed in that beautiful nine-month time frame, then a child is born into the world. And it's almost our first trauma being separated from our mother, being separated from this force that has brought this body into existence. And then from birth, 
we start to have experiences outside of our mother. We're exposed to different people, different energies, different experiences, and we start to learn what we, what we learn about the world in this way. But before all of this happened, there was essence, there was life force, there was the spark of life that needed no body, that needed no personality to exist. It existed independent of these things. And so for me, this kind of meditation and this process of peeling back the layers of self or to really bring us back into this one point where all we are is pure potential, pure energy, pure loving awareness. And so how does ego affect the way that we live our lives? Well, as we build our ego over time and we've gone through life up until this point, really building on to that ego, you know, there's the belief that I grew up with in my household, first of all, that you needed to get an education so that you could quote unquote, make something of yourself. So right off the bat, the message that I got from that, although I didn't understand it until much, much later in life, is that, okay, I'm not good enough the way that I am. And this is why my parents take us to church every Sunday because we're not very good and we need to go to church and we need to pray and ask for forgiveness for all the ways in which we are not good so that hopefully we can be better. And so here's this idea of how the ego starts to form. Well, I'm not good enough. And then we go to school and we get measured based on our performance, on our grades, on the metrics of the system. And if we didn't do well in school, well, there's another belief that we can add to the ego. Either I'm really smart or I'm not so smart, or maybe I'm somewhere in between the others. Now, I held the belief that I wasn't very smart. I didn't do very well in school. I didn't particularly enjoy school and I didn't really pay attention. It lost me. I had a lot of questions that the school board didn't like to answer. And so I was lost in, in a lot of that. And I remember you know, one particular semester where I had taken mechanics in high school and I got like a 93% in my final grade for auto. And yet I failed math, I failed science and I failed history and had to go to summer school for all three. And my mother was furious. And she said to me, what are you going to be a mechanic or something? And I sort of said like, well, maybe. I mean, at least I won't have to pay someone to change my oil for the rest of my life because I know how to do that. <laughs> at least I don't have to pay someone for basic welding because now I know how to do that. That seemed like a really practical skill for me to have, given the fact that everybody I knew was driving cars and everybody that I knew had to pay mechanics to do work on their cars. But that wasn't good enough. That wasn't what my parents had envisioned for me. And so then you get these these layers and layers and layers, these beliefs, right? I mean, growing up, I watched my parents um, really struggle. Like we had, my youngest sister is autistic. And so our upbringing was far from quote unquote normal. Um, there was probably, you know, a lot more stress in our household than in normal households. Like you still had stress about money and feeding the family. You still had stress about bills and all of those things, putting a roof over your head, paying off your mortgage. Like that was all very prominent stress that I could feel in our, in our family. I knew about mortgages way before I really understood what they were, but I knew that it was a big deal that we had to pay for this thing. And, um, 
you know, growing up in this really religious household, feeling like I already was really bad for some reason. I didn't really know what I had done so wrong to be so bad, but I wasn't born good. And so this is why I had to go to church. And then you get into the education system and I wasn't performing the way that I was expected to perform. And so then there was that other layer of really failing and letting, letting these parents down. I was also forced to play piano and take piano lessons. And it's something that I hated to do, but I was forced to do it. Um, you know, is that is another layer of not being good enough. And so you have to do these extra things in order to perform better. It's all about adding layers of ego, layers and layers and layers of ego, quote unquote, making something of yourself. So going through high school, I mean, I didn't believe I was very good. My parents, I grew up in a household where they had so much stress. I don't think I ever saw them kiss. Like I honestly don't remember them ever kissing once. I think I saw them cuddle on the couch maybe two times in my whole life. Um, but there was never really not a day of stress. I mean, if anybody knows anything about autism, um, it's challenging, especially when it's in the early stages. And my sister was diagnosed at 18 months and life as we knew it was completely flipped on its head. I mean, this is a child that didn't sleep for many, many years. And you can imagine if any one of you has been jet lagged, I mean, imagine that extended and extended, or if you've suffered with insomnia, extended over months and months on end. Um, it's enough for you to be riding the verge of a nervous breakdown, which is exactly where my parents were for many, many years. And so without them intending to cause trauma for my sisters and I, that was just a natural byproduct because we did not have parents that were very present to our needs because the needs of our sister was kind of, it took over. Um, and we understood that, I think, at a really young age. Um, you know, I kind of mothered my little sisters the best that I knew how, trying to play mom while mom was playing mom to the youngest. And, you know, it's like all of these roles that we find ourselves in that add these layers to ego. And so here I am knowing that I'm not good enough and, and knowing that I'm not performing in the way that I should and I'm not getting the grades that I get. And I don't really know what love looks like, but I'm starting to have relationships of my own at this time in high school. And not having seen really what a loving relationship looks like because I had parents that fought all the time. You know, there was dishes flying across the kitchen, smashing on the wall. There was, you know, holes being punched in the walls. There was, you know, coffee being spilled on one another and cereal being dumped. Like it was chaos. It was chaos. Everyone was on edge. And then you go out into the world of dating. And so you know, unbeknownst to me, I had in my own experiences of parenting, you know, my relationship with my mother was very, very challenged and it only got worse growing into the teenage years. Um, and she was very, very, very strict um, on everything. I mean, I wasn't allowed to do anything that my friends were doing. Um, I wasn't really even allowed. There was maybe like a very small handful of friends that I was allowed to sleep over at their house um, because their parents weren't Christians. And so, you know, they didn't want me exposed to anyone that wasn't. I wasn't even allowed to go to school dances growing up because my mother told me that the devil is in the shadows and that's why the lights are off in the dances and that you can't be anywhere like that. It's, it's very evil and demonic was the way that I was raised. Coincidentally, I grew up with night terrors my entire life, has been steeped in fear. And this is a level of my ego that has been really infused into many, many, many different aspects. So I'm just kind of trying to paint for you this picture of how ego comes to be. And so, you know, starting to date as a teenager, I 
was so insecure. I didn't know what love looked like. I knew that fighting was normal. And so I didn't really have any red flags. Um, I knew that I wasn't good enough as I was. And so I had to perform in a certain way. And this played into relationships as well, where I allowed these guys to treat me terribly. And I actually found myself in a, in a series of abusive relationships. The first few started off as emotionally abusive, but things got physical with um, two, two different partners. And, you know, it's so interesting. I remember at one point being maybe 19 or 20, somewhere in between, and looking in the mirror after a big night of partying in which a horrible, violent scene unfolded. And it was the first real time that I actually felt fearful in the abuse. Um, it was so normal that it was just a fight most of the time, but this time I actually felt fearful for my life. And I locked myself in my room. I was living, you know, in, um, the, in the mountains in Alberta. I had gone off to live in the mountains after my parents divorced and my whole life was falling apart from underneath me. And this guy that I was with, this abusive relationship was like the only um, comfort that I knew, the only person that I trusted really at that time. And I remember waking up in the morning and I had, you know, hand marks around my neck, um, bruises, hand marks around my arms and bruises, scratches on my back from being, you know, forced down a brick wall. And I just looked in the mirror and I'm like, how did I become this person? I could not understand it. It took me years to work it backwards and realize what I believed about love and relationships was in fact very toxic. And it was this very belief that I wasn't worth much more than this anyways, that gave way to me accepting a very low, low level um, of respect from other people. This played into certain friendships that I had as well. I mean, so it's, it's like this web that we weave our beliefs about the world around us, our beliefs about others, our beliefs about ourselves and how we believe is sort of how we show up in the world. And so we see everything through this lens of our own perception of our own belief system. And this is very much ego. And so it's always so fascinating because ego, I like to think of ego that we can, we can know for sure that it's present when we are in a situation that causes us to have a very intense emotional reaction. Um, whether that's a reaction we've acted upon or it's a feeling in our bodies, but we're feeling deeply, deeply emotional. Like there is something that we cannot ignore that is causing us to feel a certain way. It's shifting us from feeling at peace to feeling in distress or whatever it is. And this is always a really good time to notice, okay, what is the belief system that's underlying here? Is there a fear that's attached to this belief system somewhere? Ego has been such an interesting journey for me in my marriage because as I've gone through life, um, Again, I've dated emotionally abusive and physically abusive men for most of my 
all of my relationships. There was one that lasted three months. And honestly, because he was nice to me, it didn't feel right. And how, how twisted is that? How many women do you know that have been in abusive relationships? Maybe you are that woman. And that you, you know, the, the statement, nice guys finish last. It's like women have learned how to self-loathe in such a way that if we are not being abused in our relationships, it almost doesn't feel like it's the right relationship. It's so twisted. And so that was me. I was that person. And it took me a long time to really kind of recover from that. And I remember, you know, very vividly, um, a friend of mine, we used to meet for coffee probably a couple times a month. And she was also in an abusive relationship and I was in an abusive relationship and things were very, very toxic. And we would meet up to support one another. And one week she would be on the verge of being ready to break it off. And then the other week it would be me and we'd flip flop and, you know, no, we're going to try to work it out. We're going to go to counseling. You know, we'd have these conversations and we were, you know, the only people that we could talk to was each other because we had probably gotten to the point with most of our friends that they were like, either break up with him or stop talking to me about it because it's like not going anywhere, you know? And so her and I would meet and... I finally had a final straw with this particular relationship and it was such weird timing because we had for Christmas, we bought my autistic sister um, a trip to the Dominican Republic. And so we had planned the three of us to go on vacation together the following day. We were about to leave and I decided like, you know what? I'm done. I am so done. At this point, I had finished my yoga teacher training probably about six months prior and dove back into real life, into all of the toxicity and the abuse and had completely left behind a lot of the things that I learned. And it just, I think because of that training and learning of these different philosophies and these different ways of thinking and being and showing up and really learning a little bit more about how ego shows up in the world, I was starting to get a sense for you, this is not right. This is not right. This is not what a normal, healthy relationship looks like. And even though... This, this guy now that I'm breaking things off for the umpteenth time is crying and telling me how much he loves me. That doesn't, that's not enough. That's not enough. At some point I, I started to realize actions really do speak louder than words. And even though you think that you love me, you're not showing up in that way in our relationship. And so I had decided to break this relationship off a day before our trip. We still went, it was awkward, um, but we went and he kind of did his own thing and we tried to keep our distance from him and it was fine. Um, and I had, you know, sent a, an email to a, this friend of mine from the airport saying, hey, girl, you know, just to let you know, I broke things off. So when I come back from holiday in a week, I'm going to be looking for a roommate. Now would be a really, really great time for you to break up with your boyfriend. And uh, I sort of said it as a joke, but also half serious because I had no idea how I was going to pay for this lease that I just got myself into um, alone. I was going to need a roommate for sure. And so I got back from my trip and sure enough, she sent me an email. Hey, I broke things off. When can I move in? So she moved in with me. And um, this is, you know, one of the most spiritual friendships I had ever had up, up until that point because her and I really connected over our brokenness. And I had now this little bolster of yoga that I had learned about and that I was really still scratching the surface of understanding a lot of these philosophies and these principles and these different ways of thinking and being. 
And so I was bringing that into our friendship because I was curious. I was starting to dig up books and I was starting to read a lot of these like self-help books. Um, one of my favorite books that was really monumental for me at this time is called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza, who is a leading author and scientist on meditation and works closely with a company called HeartMath, um, who literally has been able to scientifically prove that the aura that we've talked about in spiritual realms is actually this electromagnetic frequency of our hearts. And so they have done some very, very interesting research and work together, bridging the gap between spirit and science in a way that really helped me to buy in. Because when I first approached yoga, I approached yoga as this recovering Christian that had been forced into Christianity for her whole life. And really, even just the, the word God like left a very bad taste in my mouth. And so it was hard for me to kind of buy into some of these things right off the bat because I had been there and it was all very culty as far as I was concerned and, um, you know, very judgmental. And I wasn't seeing the grace that they spoke about showing up in these people that claim to be Christians. And so it was a very interesting um, transition for me. And so I had been doing a lot of a lot of reading and, you know, this girlfriend of mine, we became roommates and we lived together and. I remember us, you know, really bonding over brokenness. She had um, some, a lot of family trauma that had happened in her life. Um, I had also family trauma, not nearly the same as hers. Um, her father was an alcoholic and he was abusive to her mother. And there was like a lot of abuse, even from her brother to her. Um, very, very, very volatile. And my upbringing, I had parents that really loved me that were relatively healthy, except for that they had so much stress in their life that they were not able to give me what I needed as a child. And that created trauma of its own. Um, whether or not, you know, they intended to is kind of besides the point because intention is different from impact. And so we had really bonded and connected and, and we noticed these trends in ourselves that both of us had been dating really abusive people that made us um, really doubt our self-worth, that made us feel very incompetent and very um, just inadequate. And so I remember sort of asking her at some point, you know, we had been sharing some stories about our trauma and one of the things that had come up for me early in life at 15 years old is I was raped by a man that is possibly twice my age and this was something that I sort of carried with me as a lot of guilt and shame this experience um, in some ways hypersexualized me because I wanted to own it instead of allow it to destroy me that if I became promiscuous then that was me taking control over my body nobody can take something from me that I'm giving willingly and that was kind of the way that I processed it from such a young age and so, I mean, we were talking and I was sharing with her that I always felt like at some point in a new relationship and I, you know, a lot of my relationships were like three plus years and anytime I'd get into a new relationship, it always ended up being so serious and there was always this point where, you know, he was going to tell me that he was in love with me and I was going to have to tell him about all my brokenness because how could he possibly love me when I have all of this horrible, horrible past that I have to share with him now? And... I remember saying to her, kind of having this like epiphany, because I'm like, well, hold on. Like, do you have any other friends that like have had these horrible experiences in relationships? Like, why? What's wrong with us? Like, what are the odds that we've not had this happen once? We have had this happen constantly. This is our entire dating experience has been 
unhealthy, toxic, and abusive. And I was like, I'm not very good at math, but the common denominator in these situations is us. Like, what are we doing? Are we, is there some sort of like sign on the back of our, you know, bodies that says, hey, please abuse me. And so we started to really dig into this. And what we realized is that we were playing a victim archetype in our lives. And this happened from childhood. This happened from this very basic primal belief that we are not good enough. And because we are not good enough, this is why bad things are happening. And it's this victim mindset. And so a very huge part of our layer of ego was victimness. And I remember thinking to myself after having these really deep conversations with her, huh, I wonder what would happen if I just never told this story again. Because like, how else can I change whatever this is that I'm putting out into the world, whatever this vibration is or this frequency is or whatever this invisible sign that says, hey, I'm a victim, please abuse me. I can't think of any other way to deal with that other than not thinking about it anymore, letting it go entirely, the guilt, the shame and all of the things that are attached to it and never telling that story again. Like, do I have to be the girl that was raped at 15? Does that have to be a part of my personality, part of my story? Like, I could, I can decide, I can decide for myself. And so I decided, okay, I'm never going to tell that story again. That is not a part of the story of Jesse that I'm going to tell. And that was a really powerful decision for me. I started to realize that I could do that with other things as well, that I didn't have to be the oldest sister of a sister with autism. Um, I didn't have to be the daughter of a woman that I found to be you know, very manipulating and very difficult and very strict and very hard to deal with. Um, a lot of those things that I had really woven into the fabric of my very personality, I could let those go. And as I continued to read this book, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, I realized I could create a new self. I could create an entirely new story and I could take control of my life. And that was a really radical turning point in my own journey because that is what helped me to bring my yoga to life. That is what helped me to develop a meditation practice, although it doesn't look the way that we think about when we think about somebody sitting in meditation for hours. It was more of this like mental um, mindfulness that I was doing for myself that I would, I would create almost like these bouncers in my mind that they were in charge of collecting all negative thoughts. And so I was on super alert for any thought that was coming into my my being that wasn't a thought that I wanted to think, that wasn't a thought that would perpetuate positive feelings for myself. And so this be this became a really, really intense practice for me moving forward and being able to work with my ego. And it's been fascinating. So after I started on this path, I decided I was going to write in my journal all about what kind of a relationship I wanted to find myself in. And I was not going to look for the superficial things, but instead I was going to look for the way that I wanted to think and feel in a relationship, the way that I wanted to be perceived, the way in which this person could support me. And I was starting to get very, very specific about these things instead of the usual how I would approach dating. What's his job? Does he have a good job? Check. Um, is he attractive? Yep. Check. Um, you know, how much money does he make? What kind of a car does he drive? What's his relationship like with his family? Um, you know, all of these kind of more superficial ego things. And this is the thing about relationships and ego is that we take our ego construct, our ego idea, and we look to kind of mate with or, or connect with an ego construct that is complementary. 
And the trouble with that is that we always put our best foot forward when we're dating. And so it's so many times it's like six months into a relationship and the person lets their guard down and shows you what their anger is like or shows you what their actual limiting beliefs are through whatever scenarios unfold. And um, I always found dating so exhausting for that reason. But I just kind of figured like, you know what, I think it's probably time that I establish what I'm looking for because that's one thing I've never done. I never knew what I wanted. All I knew is that I didn't want to be abused and I was so focused on the abuse that it was perpetuating and attracting more abuse. And so when I met my now husband, who is the first healthy relationship that I have ever had, and this does not mean that we have never had fights and that we have never used very, very foul language on one another. Um, he's Irish. I'm Italian. I'm a bunch of other things, but Italian is a good quarter of my blood. So you can imagine the feisty, um, the feisty Italian and the feisty stubborn Irish coming together, right? We were lunatics at the very first year of our relationship. However... We started to work together and what he's been able to help me see is a lot of my beliefs about not being good enough and how they were showing up in our relationship and really, really affecting us. In fact, I remember one specific fight probably about two years into our relationship and this was a fight we always had. We always had the same fight. It was always the same fight with a different topic underlying and my perception from the fight is, you know, he had something that he wanted to say to me about something. Usually, I mean, for us, it was cleanliness. I'm not the best housekeeper uh, and he likes a nice clean home. And so that was a big way that we would collide a lot. And I would take his constructive criticism as I'm just not good enough. Nothing that I ever do is good enough. Well, you know what? I'm sorry that the house is not clean enough for you. I'm sorry that I didn't fold the clothes fast enough. I'm sorry that all of these things are happening. I'm just not good enough. Sorry that I'm not good enough. And we had this big argument one day and I got into the shower and I remember him saying to me like, Jess, like, I don't understand how you're jumping from where we were to that. Like, how does that mean that you're not good enough? Like there's, I'm so baffled by this. And I got in the shower and I was having a shower and just thinking about it. And I was like, where does that come from? Like, where, where does that, that is a limiting belief. Where does that belief come from? And I started to think back to childhood and I realized, huh, this is my same approach to everything as a child. I didn't practice my piano and so I didn't have a perfect song. I'm not good enough. I was in trouble for that because it wasn't good enough. It was the way that this was installed into my belief about myself. And I started to peel back the layers. And I remember it was a really powerful shift in our relationship because I remember going to him after my shower and I said, hey, I just want to let you know. I'm really sorry about how I jumped to that conclusion. And I want to let you know that I understand very profoundly that that has nothing to do with you. This has a lot to do with my childhood and my upbringing. And trust me when I say that I'm working on it. And that's kind of how we started really opening up to one another um, and, and really being able to learn about and identify these different egoic patterns that were installed and the way in which we were choosing to identify with them. Because if my identity is that I am not good enough, that's going to affect how I show up in the world. That's going to affect every single relationship, every single job that I do, every single thing that happens in my life is going to be perceived through the lens of I'm not good enough. And it's only a matter of time before I screw things up. And so this is just one example of ego and how it shows up in personal life and how it shows up in relationships. But I encourage you to start thinking about this topic. What is ego? Who are you? Who do you think you are? What is true and what is not true? You know, just because we've had certain experiences does not 
does that mean they have to define us? And I think that's the biggest thing is that we use those experiences as a defining factor in who we are. And that's where we're, we're wrong because we are so much more than what we think, perceive, and believe about ourselves. We are so much more than that. You know, this is something that I've seen play out in my family. I, I see it you know, play out even just my mother now. She struggles so much with mental health. And for me, it's like all of these unresolved ego issues from her childhood. I see, you know, one of my sisters in particular, and I love my sisters, and this sister that I'm speaking about is so brave. She's actually um, going to be a guest on one of my future shows when it comes to eating disorders. Um, eating disorders are something that literally my whole family has dealt with, my mom, um, myself, and my two sisters. And so this one particular, I mean, her and I lived together briefly last year and not in the same area. She was in the basement apartment and we rented the top part of a house. And, um, you know, we started talking more about these issues that we couldn't talk about because they were too painful back in our childhood. I mean, she started with her bulimia, um, probably, geez, like 14 or 15 years old. And my other sister had been anorexic before that. So this was something that was kind of in our family. My cousin, I have a cousin that suffered greatly with eating disorders, um, but nobody was talking about it. It was kind of just one of those things that was happening very quietly behind the scenes. And you know, this particular sister, she had been last year going through some counseling and, you know, she would always kind of joke about how annoying it was that I was kind of giving her some of the same advice that her counselor was giving her. And she'd sort of roll her eyes at me and she's like, yes, I know you sound like my counselor. And I remember her telling me, you know, at some point in, in this stage of her, her processing, um, you know, I was asking her like, well, what would be what would be like your ideal outcome right now? Because she was holding on to a lot of anger from the past. And when she walked me through her ideal outcome for how things could be better, it was to go back in time and for people to have shown up in the way that they should have, but didn't. And I just said to her, like, you know what? Like, that's so interesting because that means that there is no resolution that's possible if that's, that's like, that's all you want is to go back in time and erase it all. It's not possible. And I asked her, like, have you considered who you would be if you were no longer able to define yourself by someone who has suffered with an eating disorder? And she looked panicked. The look on her face was like, that's too much to think about right now. And I said, like, who are you? Who are you? I said, at some level, you know, we get in the way of our own healing because of what we believe about ourselves. And so if we have spent our entire lives utilizing all of our experience to form our personality at some level, if there's something we need to heal from, that threatens our entire existence. I found this to be true for myself in being diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. I'd been sick for my whole 20s pretty much, longer than that, but I hadn't identified with it until I was in my 20s, realizing it was becoming more and more problematic every single year. And this went on for easily a decade, if not longer. And my now husband, when we first started dating, he was, you know, very aware of these issues and they were continuing to unfold at rapid rates. And he's the one that actually encouraged me to go to school to become a holistic nutritionist because um, I really needed to fix myself. I hadn't planned on doing this as a career, but I knew that I needed help. And my doctor kept telling me that, that, that there was nothing wrong, but there was very clearly a lot wrong. 
And so I had gone to school to figure this out. And when I graduated, I got a job at a nonprofit organization. And I mean, I was suffering. Like this was my reason for not being able to eat certain foods. This was my reason for not even being able to be intimate because this was causing me such tremendous pain in my, in my um, abdomen. And the allergies that I would get, um, I was having insomnia. I had these skin things like psoriasis was starting to happen in my scalp. And um, yeah, the, the insomnia was crazy. The mood swings, though, would have been the worst. And those had been going on for a long, long time. Instable moods, um, depression, anxiety, all of these that I thought were separate problems. And as I went to school, I started to learn that these were actually byproducts of the imbalance that was going on in my body. And I couldn't figure it out myself. And when I graduated, I was so lucky to get a job working for a nonprofit naturopathic organization. And the way that they onboarded all of their new hires was to literally give them the equivalent of a $600 blood panel that Health Canada would never run. That is way more extensive than any of the tests that we would ever do provided by our healthcare system. And because the naturopathic doctor that was assigned to my file knew that I was a holistic nutritionist, when she was going over my results with me, she asked me, so how long have you had Hashimoto's thyroiditis? And I just looked at her and I said, that's what it is. I said, I knew for so long something's been going on, but they've been telling me everything is normal, everything is normal. And I've asked my doctor to check my thyroid year after year, and he keeps telling me that it's normal. And she's like, well, you know, they only test one of, of five or six different things to look at. And so it... It was diagnosed then and there that I had an autoimmune disease that was affecting my thyroid. For those of you that don't know what autoimmunity is, it's when the body and the cells in the body literally attack their own tissues. And it can, this is what um, celiac is another form of, of autoimmunity. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is another form of autoimmunity, fibromyalgia, and it's basically um, attacking different body tissues. And so mine is Hashimoto's, which attacks the thyroid. Um, and then you've got all sorts of different rheumatoid arthritis attacks, the joints, the connective tissue, fibromyalgia attacks the muscles and there's, and the connective tissue. There's all of these different ways in which the body is attacking itself. And what seemed interesting to me as I looked into this more was that it was really no different than what I was doing to myself and the barrage of negativity that I would think about myself and the way that I would look in the mirror and pick myself apart and talk to myself in these horrible, insulting ways in the standards I held for myself that were impossible for me to ever meet. And I realized my body was doing what I had taught it to do, to self-destruct, to destroy itself, to tell itself it wasn't good enough and to literally self-destruct. And so it was an interesting time. And when I came out of that appointment, having the diagnosis, I was so excited initially because I was like, finally, now I have a place to start. Instead of just fumbling around the dark, I know what to do. And then I, I put myself on a protocol that lasted for 30 days. It was supposed to last uh, probably a year. And I did it for 30 days and then I stopped. And my husband, and this is the way that you know he has really helped me work on my ego. I remember him saying to me, oh, you're not going to do this protocol anymore? Why not? And I said, well, you know, it's summertime and I'm also working part-time at this like bar restaurant and like I'm going to want to have a drink or two over the summer. I'm going to want to, you know, eat some of the food at the restaurant. Like it's really good food and I just don't want to be restrictive. It's just going to be too unsustainable at this time. So I'll start it again in the fall. And he just looked at me and he said, well, I guess you don't really want to get better, do you? And I was so mad when he said this, like, I can't even tell you 
I wanted to throw things at him. Um, and I think I just went into the bathroom and locked the door and cried in the shower. Um, I was so mad. But I also knew that part of what he said hit somewhere in me that gave me this intense emotion. And I realized, oh, there's ego here. There's work to be done here. Because why else, if what he said had no truth, why would it make me so angry? If I knew that what he said wasn't true, why would it make me angry? Either because he perceives me in this way and that's a threat to my ego or because there's truth. And so I had to start looking. And what I came up with was that, you know what, at some level, being sick is so much woven into my personality that who would I be if I wasn't? Being sick was a way that I could get out of things. I started to back out of social gatherings that I didn't want to go to and I would just use that same excuse. I'm not feeling well. Some of the time it was true, but not always. All the other ways that I didn't show up for my family or that I could justify um, even in my stage of dealing with eating disorder when I had forced myself to lose some weight through binging and purging. And, you know, I remember my mom looking at me and saying, you look sick. And I said, well, I, I am actually, um, I am sick. This was before my diagnosis, but I knew that I was suffering in some multitude of ways. And so it was so much woven into my personality that at some really deep primal level, I didn't actually want to get better because that threatened the existence of who I thought I was. And that was difficult. That was difficult to work with. I had to work with that very, very gently, very, very, very gently, because it's not something that is easy to confront. In fact, it's very confronting. But I knew that he was right. And it took me probably an additional two years to work through that and to get to this place where I genuinely was ready to heal my body. And I genuinely was ready to make the decisions that I needed to make day to day in order to ensure that I was supported in my health and wellness, in my mindset, in my spirituality, in order to make these dramatic healings happen in my body. And so ego is something that I am constantly working with. Even now, I don't think that you get to the point where you don't have it, but it's interesting as it unfolds because ego is also what causes us to take things personally. And what we don't realize is that how people behave and the way that they treat you has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them. But when we are in our egos, we take things personally. And it's a very, very different way to experience life. And so now when I'm working with ego, I have moments of reactivity. I have moments of, you know, letting myself fly off the handle. And I'm, I'm quicker to apologize now and seeing in myself my own responsibility to behave in a certain way that's in accordance with my own morals and values and beliefs, regardless of how anybody else is living their lives. I do not have to allow somebody else's behavior, beliefs, or mindset to alter and impact negatively the way that I conduct myself. And so now I kind of sit behind the ego a little bit and I notice when I'm having an emotional response to something, ooh, there's the ego. Okay, there's some work to be done. And, you know, instead of dealing with it, I used to get really frustrated with myself for having an ego response as if like, oh, I'm not good enough. It was still running that old story. You know, I should be, I'm a yogi. I should be better at things like this. I should be this and I should be that. Um, basically this belief that I shouldn't be human, which is ridiculous. And now I look at it as, oh, there's the ego. What does it have to teach me this time? I'm feeling really anxious about this particular scenario. What's underneath that? Is there a belief that needs to be healed? 
And it's been such a powerful, powerful tool for me on my path. When people treat me in a way that I don't feel is right, I now have the ability to sit back and think, I wonder what they believe about themselves that's causing them to react to me in this way. And that's profound. That has changed my relationships in a very dramatic way. Working with ego has also been a way for me to set really healthy, really meaningful boundaries so that I can continue to work in this way without allowing certain people to project their own emotions onto me. And so ego work is very much, if you've ever heard the term shadow work, um, that's ego work, working with our shadow sides, the darker sides of ourselves that we don't like to perceive, that we don't like to admit are there. You know, most of the times we're so willing to take on all of the positive attributes that we think that we have, and we're not willing to even see the ways in which we are maybe um, behaving in a negative loop or we're behaving from this place of negative or limiting beliefs. And so ego is like this way of really working with those shadow aspects of ourselves. And um, yeah, it's a topic that I'm going to continue to work with, that I'm going to continue to um, talk about as we move through. And so I just thought now would be a great time to introduce it to you all so that it's in context for when we start um, unfolding more podcasts. So that's all I have for you for this episode, understanding the ego. I'd be so, so curious to connect with you with any insights or aha moments that you might have had or ways that you perceive your ego to show up in your life. Keep thinking about it. Keep asking, who am I? Keep looking for those times when you feel an intense emotional reaction because that is opportunity to really work and grow and heal. Have a beautiful, beautiful rest of your week. We'll see you soon.